Um, I wanted to talk about idolatry. It kind of came up as a theme both for uh, Theopub. Uh, Steve, I think you're the only one here who was at Theopub on Thursday, so it'll be a little bit of a repeat for Steve, but the rest of you know. Oh, we didn't finish it there. No. This is just a continuation. Exactly. A little bit more in depth. Um, idolatry, I think, is a word that's not very spicy. I don't know if it's necessarily a word that Christians think about a lot as something we need to either worry about or stay away from or anything like that. Um, I think idolatry and modern understanding, at least within Christian circles, is probably more understood as um, the worship of a different God, right? And not anything other than that. Um, for me, especially studying Paul in seminary, like, the biggest thing Paul is worried about when he's writing his letters to these churches is idolatry. That's the thing he's warning them about the most. And that's always stuck with me from seminary until now. And I'm surprised I haven't done an unorthodox on idolatry yet. But um, here we are today. It's something I've uh, just felt really called to do. And so I'm going to try to get through this quickly. Um, so don't ask any questions unless it's a clarifying question, and then we have questions at the end. So what I want to do is kind of lay a groundwork for a biblical understanding of idolatry, or at least understand how the Bible talks about idolatry. And of course it changes, because the Bible was written over the course of about oh, 1,500 years or so, and, and idolatry in the Hebrew Bible is going to be a little different than idolatry in Paul's letters. Um, but my hope is to kind of give us an understanding of idolatry and maybe even think of a definition for today and then talk about what idolatry looks like in kind of a more modern or postmodern world. So I start, I just wanted to give a baseline definition. This is from Merriam-Webster. Um, they only I define idolatry in two ways. One is the worship of a physical object as God. Now when you think of like the Catholic Church and having icons or any kind of physical symbols, um, most Catholics are not worshiping those symbols as God. Those symbols usually point Catholics towards their understanding of God. So I wouldn't say that the icons and stuff that the Catholic Church uses, I wouldn't call those as idols. Um, however, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Or the immoderate attachment or devotion to something. Now again, having an attachment or to devotion or devotion to something is not idolatry, but having an immoderate attachment or devotion to something. We'll talk about that at the end as well. Um, within the Hebrew Bible, idolatry is a big deal. Now, I don't know how familiar you all are with the Ten Commandments, if you have them memorized or anything like that. I, I have no expectation that you do. Um, but really, idolatry, the understanding of idolatry within uh, ancient Judaism starts with Moses receiving the Decalogue and the Commandments. Um, and and how this organized tribe, this organized uh, civilization or community is going to operate, what is going to be a big part of their identity moving forward. Um, and, and so the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments, of all the Ten Commandments, starts with the, the, the prohibition of idolatry. Um, I, it's written through the first six chapters of Exodus 20. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods beside me. That's a big word there, beside me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or 
that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the Ten Commandments start with this prohibition of idolatry. Um, I think a lot of us grew up thinking that, that the Israelites were a monotheistic religion and that the big competition was these foreign gods that might compete for people's devotion, etc. Especially in a time when if there is a drought or a famine, you look to the gods either to intervene or to understand why that is happening. The Hebrew of the first commandment says, no other gods beside me. That is not a rejection of the existence of other gods, but it is a rejection of devotion towards other gods. Um, a lot of, uh, well, I'm not gonna get that yet. So it's important to understand that. I've included the golden calf story as well. I don't know how many of you know that story off the top of your head, um, which is, you know, it's, it's humorous if you think about it. So Moses goes up and gets these 10 commandments, these rules, and while he's doing it, they're literally down the mountain breaking the first rule, right? Um, and so Moses is up in the mountain for 40 days. The Israelites are worried. They think something has happened to him. They didn't know he was going to be up there for 40 days, so they're worried that he's not coming back. Um, and so they go to his brother Aaron, who's like the head priest, and they tell him, hey, make us a god that we can worship because Moses bounced. And so Aaron tells them to take all of their gold and he's going to melt it together and create this golden calf. And he puts it out there, um, and so that's, that's where the story picks up. So Aaron took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made pro- a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to Adonai. Now, there is a blurred line there that I don't think we catch when we read this, or at least growing up. When I grew up and I heard this story, my, what I was told was that this calf was a representation of a completely separate god. Um, some scholars will say it's the symbol of Baal, uh, who, whose symbol was uh, a bull, not a calf, but a bull. There's another story in, in Second Kings, I believe, with uh, uh, Jeroboam, who creates two golden calves when he starts a brand new temple up at Shechem, where Samaritans come from. Um, and while that is definitely there in the reading, the line is blurred. And, and as you have it there at the very last sentence, tomorrow shall be a festival to Adonai or Yahweh. Um, it's, it's not just a separate God. It is a blurred line of possibly a physical representation of God as well. And so you could kind of hold both of those things in balance as to what the Israelites were doing. Were they worshiping a separate god, or were they worshiping a physical uh, creation, replication, something to look like God? And and you can't say definitely one way or the other. Um, I was listening to Dan McClellan's podcast the other day, and he was talking about the origin of of the name Yahweh. And it's phenomenal stuff. I think if I if I understand it more, I'll do another unorthodox on it. But um, uh, the Israelites and the other religions were not completely separate from each other. It wasn't Baal 
it's kind of a competition of whose understanding is going to have a bigger, a bigger um, influence. So again, those, those lines are kind of blurred there. But the big thing I want to rest on is um, one, the physical, uh, physical manifestation of God is a huge no-no, and at the same time, devotion to something else outside of one's own religion is a big no-no. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of what we get in the Hebrew Bible about idolatry, about Baal, uh, comes from this prohibition. And the reason that happens is there was historically a lot of competition going on between these other gods that existed around them at the same time. So that moves into, I just want to give a foundation there for the Hebrew Bible. Um, Jesus and the Way, that's the title I want to get into the New Testament here. I, I'm not going to talk a lot about the Gospels. We spend a ton of time talking about this. We spend a lot of time talking about what was the Jesus movement historically. Um, was it a, a, a religion of belief and worship? Or was it a religion of a way of life and devotion to God? And I think we've talked about this enough to say it's the latter there. It's, it's devotion to God through this way of life that Jesus invites his followers to, a way of life of radical egalitarianism, uh, justice for the most marginalized, creating a value system that was completely different than the world's value system and inviting people into that and participating in it. So. Um, one thing we have in the Gospels is Jesus never instructs his, his followers to worship him, ever. As a Jewish person, that would have been blasphemy. Jesus does point people towards praise and thanksgiving and worship of God, but Jesus never directs that to himself. Um, even if Jesus considered himself to be God incarnate, he would have been a physical representation of God, just like the golden calf, and that would have been blasphemous. So it's important to note Especially when we think of Jesus' worship today, Jesus never would have allowed himself to be worshipped as God as a Jewish person in Second Temple Judaism. That's just completely against the grain. Um, the emphasis on the Jesus movement, as I said, you know, was always on a way of life. And these are a bunch of references from things Jesus has said. This is not an exhaustive list. These are the ones that I just thought of at the top of my head. Pick up your cross and follow me. Love others as I have just loved you. If you love me, feed my sheep. Uh, care for the least of these, which is a big separation. Those who care for the least of these will be part of my, my community, and those who don't will be separated. Um, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That was from today's gospel reading. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, baptizing them and commanding them to obey what I have taught you. Jesus movement was not a movement of worship. It was a movement of action, pragmatism, justice, care for the least of these. And, and one way we can know it's not a movement of worship is because that would have been idolatry. Now, Paul, now I've got to give a couple warnings here. We have never spent a lot of time on Paul in unorthodox. And as I was going through this, trying, I, mean, I literally went through all seven of Paul's letters and like, my mind was spinning. I ended up working on my day off because it's just so much. Um, so what I'm going to give you is only a couple little snapshots. I would love to get into Paul more deeply at some point. It's just not possible today. It's not possible to do it in one, one unorthodox. Um, so Paul is extensive. I'm only using snapshots. There is a ton more to Paul, and I'm aware of that. As I said at the beginning, 
Paul's chief concern for his communities was their susceptibility to idolatry, especially because Paul is, is dealing with Gentile communities, people who come from the Greco-Roman world, and he is up against Greco-Roman gods, a Greco-Roman emperor cult system, um, and a Greco-Roman understanding of life. There is a lot for Paul to deconstruct there with these communities that he's setting up. Um, the other thing we need to understand about Paul's idolatry is that modern interpreters have confused Paul's warnings towards idolatry with a sexual ethic and have missed the forest for the trees. I think kind of our puritanical medieval upbringings saw Paul talking about sexual stuff and keyed in so hard to that that thought that's only what Paul is talking about and don't realize that Paul is talking about a larger understanding of idolatry for him and is talking about his own understanding of sexual ethics, which is not anything that anybody really is beholden to today. Um, the other thing to understand with Paul's idolatry, his understanding of idolatry, is that Paul was utterly convinced that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. I mean, he literally thought he had only a very small amount of time to invite as many people as possible into, into this way of life, and Jesus was going to be coming back any moment. So there are things that Paul believes because of that timeline that I think if Paul knew that he was going to be off by at least 2,000 years, would have been doing some very different things with his community. So one of the things Paul is, is really warning his communities about is any kind of sexual activity. In fact, he doesn't want people to get married. He says, only get married if you can't control your own libido. Um, and this is all because of this very immediate focus on Jesus coming back very soon. Um, I, I think it would, I mean, I'm at a point, I'm saying this in front of Bishop, um, we need to humanize Paul a lot. We treat Paul as though he's second Jesus. You know, Jesus is perfect and Paul is pretty much perfect too. Everything Paul ever wrote or said must be perfect as well. There's no room to question it. Um, I think we need to deconstruct Paul and realize he was a human being operating under certain circumstances and, and he missed the mark sometimes. Um, so all of that goes into understanding Paul's warnings of idolatry. However, the reason I'm sharing so much of Paul is because I think there is some benefit to Paul's warnings of idolatry. So I've, I've pulled from only Romans and Corinthians. As, as we know, he's got at least seven letters. Um, but this is just kind of a snapshot. So Romans, this is Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Again, this is just to highlight, um, you know, Romans is probably Paul's most famous letter, but even right at the beginning of, of uh, his letter to the Romans, he's giving his warning of idolatry. So he says, ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that he has made. So they, being the Gentiles, have no excuse. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the degrading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creatures rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So what does that mean? This is one of those areas where we need to realize that Paul was a human and did not know everything. What Paul is saying here is that the Greco, because God has created everything, and because God is present in everything, the Greco-Roman world has enough information to understand that God is real. Paul's wrong there. The Greco-Roman world does not have enough information to know <laughs> God is real. They have their whole other religious system, and it was a domineering and extensive religious system. But in Paul's logical mind, because God has created everything and because God exists in everything, the Greco-Roman world knows that God is real and that God exists. So they have absolutely no excuse to not worship or acknowledge God. And because they have chosen not to worship or acknowledge God, even though they understand that God is real, then God has removed from them their restraints and they now participate in debaseless worship, etc. And, and so Paul's walking around the Greco-Roman world seeing things that he doesn't like. And for him, it's idolatry because he thinks the Greco-Roman world knows God and is choosing not to worship God. Again, he's wrong. But a lot of his stuff that comes out of him about sexual ethics that, that people have just grabbed onto for 2,000 years and run with it, um, it it's, it's evolved into this idea that Paul uh, is intentionally creating a sexual ethic and, and absolutely 100% knows what he's talking about. Again, we have to humanize Paul and realize he, he missed the mark on this one. Um, that's Romans. I, I also want to say in Romans and Corinthians, I, I didn't get into this. And we've talked about this with our series on empire. Um, Paul's trying to create communities that live into this value system of Jesus as an alternative way of living from the Greco-Roman world. They're egalitarian. They're loving. Women are in leadership. Slavery is not a thing. Um, there are so much in these letters about what Paul wants Christians or, or Jesus, how he wants them to live their lives. I didn't include any of that in this. Like I said, I'd love to do a series on Paul at some point, but it's extensive what Paul says, and it, it really is about not judging, it's about loving, it's about community, it's about uh, forgiveness, grace, all of that stuff. I didn't include it in today's topic, however. Um, so 1 Corinthians, this is another big one. This comes from chapter 6. Um, and, and, and just kind of the context here, Paul is warning about lawsuits with believers in front of Greco-Roman leaders, or Greco-Romans being idolaters. Um, he's writing to the Corinthians, the, the church of Corinth was Paul's least favorite church, at least of the letters that we have. Um, they're the ones that are struggling the most living this way of life out. And so, you know, his first letter that we have to the church in Corinth, he's really trying to correct a lot of behavior. One of the things he's figured out is that believers, so, you know, probably Greco-Roman people, but they're Jesus-believing people, are getting angry with each other, and they're filing lawsuits against each other, and these are going in front of Greco-Roman leaders who are not part of the believing community. These are idolaters. Um, and so he's, he's, he's upset that they're doing this, but the way he's trying to tell them, you guys need to work this stuff out amongst each other, is because the 
other Greco-Roman non-believers, they're all idolaters, and, and this is what he is saying about them. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So that list right there, fornicators, adulterers, adul uh, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, blah, 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 blah. That is all a list of idolatry for Paul. These are all the things, because again, Paul thinks Jesus is coming back immediately. These are all the things that are pulling people's attention away from making sure that they help Jesus come back as soon as possible. For Paul, idolatry is anything that pulls people away from that laser sight focus on living this way out so that Jesus could come back immediately. Uh, idolatry is, is a big thing for Paul. It's not so much about worshiping a physical object like the golden calf. It is far more about anything that pulls somebody away from what they're supposed to be doing in both devotion to God, Jesus, and this way of life. It would be really interesting if Paul didn't think that Jesus was coming back so soon. What he would do with his advice, his information, etc. The thing I really want you to focus, though, is that for Paul, idolatry is anything that pulls people away from this kind of focus on this way of life, this, this devotion to God, not through worship so much, but through uh, living this out, helping Jesus come back as soon as possible. So there is a ton more there. I am not doing Paul any kind of justice. Is there a certain kind of irony in the idea that at the same time he's suggesting that, he's beginning what becomes a sort of idol who is Jesus, the returning um, I don't, I mean, there is an irony to that. I, don't, I think it's an irony that's completely lost on Paul. Um, absolutely. I, I don't know what Paul would think about if, you know, if he saw the church today and what it's become. Um, and I, I, I do believe that Paul thinks so much of the way he thinks because he thinks that Jesus is coming back so soon. And I think he would have operated very differently had he thought that, you know, God's time is different than or that, that the second coming might be a completely different process than Jesus showing up like that. Yeah, because after all, he had direct contact with people who had interacted with Jesus directly as a, as a human being who died and resurrected. And, you know, it's hard not to pay a lot of attention to that and feel like, well, there it is. from a Jewish eschatology, and so, you know, um, Jewish, Jewish eschatology was that God was going to reconcile the world to God's self. That was going to start with the resurrection of the dead. So for Paul, he believed that Jesus was the first person to be resurrected from the dead, and because of that, this eschatology had been kicked into gear. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, it's coming now, that's why Jesus rose from the dead. And of course, he was off by 
So, since we have several other stories of people resurrected from the dead, why do we say Jesus was the first one? I mean, Lazarus being an obvious during Jesus' lifetime. I mean, that's more of a, I, th I think, a medieval um, understanding of Christianity moving forward. Again, we talk about historical criticism not being present for people to use until, well, for the church, like the 1900s, but, you know, people didn't have the ability to go back and understand the context of, of a lot of their ancient writings. The world was illiterate. So most people weren't exposed to um, resurrection from the dead and Greco-Roman mythology. Um, right, so there was a lot of it. Yeah, and yeah. so to say that Jesus was the first is obviously not true in that respect. Right. However, for Paul, Jesus is the first of this, this, this eschaton that's going to happen. So he's not the first ever, but he's the first of this eschaton. Good questions, very good questions. And that's part of Jewish faith? Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know what modern Judaism says about, um, you know, their current eschatology. I know we had David and Elaine here who said the Jews are still waiting for a Messiah, and they're part of our local Reformed Jewish community. Um, I honestly don't know what that looks like for Jewish people today. Um, I don't know if they believe in an eschaton still, or what that looks like. I'm not sure. Probably more than one opinion about that. Uh, yeah, it's probably very diverse. <laughs> yeah. 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 Johnny? I was going to say, too, Jesus himself said that he was coming back. Right. And right. When, he, when he spoke to his disciples before he was crucified, he saying, kept saying, I'm going to come back. Yeah, and that's I, a real good reason to expect You know, the, the idea that why would he say he's coming back if it wasn't going to be an immediate thing, if it was going to be, right. you know, a couple millennia away. Yeah. So, I well, mean, he said it himself, and it was, that was what was being taught. So he said he's coming back. So, so why would he wait? He came back, he wrote, he met Paul on the road to wherever. So he came back shortly thereafter, what, 20 years or 15 years ago it was? We hardly how long that gap was. So he was, to me, I always took that as he was saying, I'm here, I'm, I haven't really left. I'm appearing to people at different places at different times. So the second coming was his birth into the ether, kind of, in my opinion. And there's so many directions you yeah. could go with that, right? And, uh, <laughs> I think, honestly, the problem is that the, the church, when it became a powerful institution, came up with a very defined understanding of what it was going to be, right. and has gotten wrong many different times, so maybe we should take a lesson here and stop trying to define things so exactly. Mm -hmm. um, what I definitely want to do with idolatry is kind of humanize Paul and realize a lot of his theology is coming from his belief that Jesus is going to be here any second, and that's not necessarily true. Paul may have thought differently. However, I think Paul's ultimate lesson of idolatry, that idolatry is anything that pulls people away from devotion to God through this way of life, is still a very important lesson. And I think throughout his ministry, even if he didn't think Jesus was coming back immediately, he still would have had that same warning and, and desire for that same dedication to this way of life. So I, I, the three things I talked about, a little foundation here. So the Hebrew Bible... Um, you know, ancient Judaism, idolatry wasn't just worshiping other gods. Idolatry was, was being pulled away from devotion to God. And so what the what, what Torah, what the Talmud, what, what Judaism wants is an ongoing pursuit of devotion to God, this covenant relationship with Torah, or through Torah. Um, but but, but the, the devotion to God is always evolving. This is one of my favorite things about the Jewish faith even today. 
know, Jewish people will not say God's name. Jewish people will not depict God in any kind of form at all, at all, because you just cannot capture God. There is an ongoing pursuit of God, of knowing God, of God being realized, and and a lot of that pursuit is done through this covenant relationship with Torah. But it's it's always ongoing. It's always evolving. And the moment you try to capture God, you lose out on that pursuit. Um, Jesus. The big lesson for Christians today had no desire to be worshipped at all. Jesus wanted to pull people into this same pursuit. For Jesus, it was through what the prophets warned, and it was through this dedication to caring for the least of these and the kingdom of heaven being present here and now. We get to participate that and in it and bring it about through this devotion, this way of life. Jesus would have never allowed himself to be worshipped. Um, and then Paul, you know, even though he's guided by this all-encompassing sense that Jesus was going to be returning immediately, this idea that followers needed to, you know, they needed to avoid anything that might slow this down, but they also just needed to be devoted to this way of life because it was the kingdom of heaven for Paul, too. He thought it was going to bring the kingdom more quickly. That doesn't mean it's not bringing the kingdom, even though it's not going based on the so all that kind of coming together, what can we say idolatry is in a modern understanding? Anybody want to venture a, a guess at that? TikTok. <laughs> you say TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking about that because we talked about it a few. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me is that there's something about idolatry that separates us from God. Yeah that we think there's God or there's that, whatever it is, and here I am, and I'm not the same. I'm not part of that. And I think that that's not what the message of Jesus was. I, I agree with that in many different ways, Steve, yeah. Well, basically, if Jesus wouldn't allow worship of himself because that was idolatry, then the church worshiping God would be idolatry. Well, I, again, Jesus... I mean, worshiping point, Jesus. Yeah. I don't mean to, yeah. I mean, From a Jesus standpoint, absolutely, yeah. And I think it's it's when the thing itself becomes more important than God Himself. I remember um, I gave a, a talk when I was a junior high pastor about Bible, where I ripped sections of the Bible out um, as my illustration, and and uh, and these are junior highers and high schoolers, even like the, they started just. So, like, the point I was trying to make was completely lost on me because I was like, wow, like, I can't even handle, like, this book has become something other than what this book is. This is the book that talks about God, but they've made it, in our culture, it's become something outside of that. Yeah, as you know, that your last year high? <laughs> 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 I got a... And then there are things that become an end. And so if our stuff, you know, you know, wanting to get more stuff becomes the end rather than wanting to have this thing to enhance our life and give us joy, it, it's, it, 
it gets in the way. And so serving and worshiping God and being a part of the community of God, in my mind, is the end. And the things that become an end instead are idolatry. Because this is, this is the road I'm on, and if I'm knocked over here, then it's not, it's, not that, it's not that any particular thing is wrong. I'm not gonna say, oh, this is always wrong. But if this is moving me here instead of here, yeah. then, then it becomes idolatry. Yeah. So it's, it's not, you know, we can't say that ripping up the Bible is or is not wrong. It's, it's where it is in yeah. it. Yeah. That, that's how I would see it. Yeah. I, I love the golden calf story because it's nuts, right? Yeah. I mean, like Moses is having a religious experience with God and the people go, well, where's God? Where's Moses? Like, as soon as God isn't tangible and right in front of us, they have to fill the gap with this other thing. And I think that, to me, is where the church goes into idolatry. Mm -hmm. We get uncomfortable with lack of power or lack of funds or God isn't as obvious as we thought or God isn't doing what we thought God was going to do. And so we fill the gap. Yeah, I like that. You know, and so now it comes um, uh, legalism. It becomes entertainment. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm talking about worship, but I think that's why, like, the dogma of the church got so oppressive, because like, we had to, we couldn't believe there was grace, yeah. and so we filled it with an idolatry of something else. Yeah, go on. I have a different take on that. I um, I grew up in a very strict Lutheran church, so there were no. Uh, idolizing any objects. They're, the objects were the symbol mm -hmm. of God or mm -hmm. of Jesus or of the uh, terrible things Jesus had to go through, like Jesus on the cross and so forth, but that was just a symbol. What I see today is very often also in, you know, um, religious people or power uh, or, or people who should know better is the goal is not the divine God. The goal is power. Yes. And that's, that's it. And you see it everywhere in the world. And I think that is where the danger is because... I agree. And I, this is all jiving with what we're going to be talking about moving forward too, but I think these kind of definitions are coming up from what we've talked about, this idea of pursuing God without trying to capture God. Um, I love Jesus because Jesus does give us something tangible, but the tangible thing is in the pursuit. The pursuit is what becomes tangible, and that tangibleness is love and compassion and grace and justice for other people, starting with the least of these and then working from there, um, but, but stays away from himself as a tangible object of worship. Um, so I what is idolatry? I think it's anything that pulls us away from that that pursuit. Some, you know, anything that makes us miss that mark. Um, and it's a pursuit. It's a destination you never ever achieve, ever. You never get there. You just keep going and realize that heaven's breaking in every part of that journey, and that's really the point. Um, so, so my own personal conclusion that I created with this. Actually, sorry. Um, there, there is a, a way to think about this. We're obviously already talking about how the modern church can be idolatrous, especially with its own symbols of its faith. 
how, how can that happen? And I really think it comes to what is what a, a community, denomination, etc. defines as the point of Christianity. Now, if the point of Christianity is to get to an afterlife destination, it is perfectly acceptable to create idols. That afterlife, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to have objects to worship if that's what you think is going to get you to the afterlife. It's perfectly acceptable to have very concrete dogmas and doctrines if you think following those is what's going to get you to the afterlife. There's really not a whole lot of pursuit there. It's just checking things off the box, those boxes becoming idols. Um, however, if, 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 if one community says that the point of Christianity is a way of life, an ongoing pursuit, then having anything that pulls away from that pursuit can become idolatrous. And I think that's why we can have a conversation about idolatry within Christianity while there's a separate congregation out there somewhere where if they heard this right now, would be losing their minds and condemning all of us as heretics. Um, kind of challenging these bedrock things. So my conclusion is that one, I, I agree with Paul that idolatry is a massive sin that separates us from God, from devotion to God, and a devotion to this way of life. Um, whether it's intentional or unintentional, Christianity has become a religion with the primary motivation of an afterlife destination. Now that doesn't mean a lot of Christian communities are doing the same thing. I mean, you know, our bishops here, I would say our whole uh, church denomination is kind of pulled away from that idea of, of Christianity as afterlife destination. However, I'm sure every pastor has members in their community who still think that the idea of Christianity is to get to heaven after you die. And a lot of pastors are working uphill against a lot of these uh, long-sustaining beliefs. Um, but Christianity has become a religion with the, with the primary motivation of an afterlife destination. Thus, idolatry is an encroaching sin, not just of Christians, but within Christianity itself. Some of those idols are Jesus as an object of worship. Got a big Greek statue behind me, right? Uh, the Bible, like Johnny pointed out. Christianity as a system of belief or dogma or doctrine that isn't open to critique or question. Um, any of these symbols of the powerful or maintaining status quo. So any Christian symbol that is about maintaining power or the status quo um, is, is, is an idol. Um, I, I had it in a question down here at the bottom, but there is plenty of room to speak about how a powerful community, a powerful country, a powerful system since the dawning of time has always used religion to maintain its own power, right? And Christianity in its onset stood up against that then became the very thing that it was standing up against. Um, you know, how, like, it's, it blows my mind that we can have pictures of Donald Trump holding a Bible and, like, hugging a flag at yeah. the same time. Right? One nation under God. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's like, I, like the most obvious signs of idolatry are slapping Christians in the face, mm -hmm. and no one is saying Christianity has become a phenomenal tool to maintain power and a phenomenal 
not pursuing this life, the kingdom of heaven here and now, and this way of life of, of love and justice and compassion, all the things that Jesus tells us to do. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. The, the goal of worship is not God, it's power. And this guy holding the Bible is a good yeah. <laughs> symbol of that. And uh, you know, you see all the stuff that they are doing, surrounding themselves with evil, and, and saying, oh yeah, this is, you know, God put me here to do this. No. And the problem is blindness. I agree. I was just going to say that. I think these symbols detract us from, and, and I honestly think we can look at every president in the history of our country as being able to get away with this, from you know Donald Trump to Barack Obama to you know every president, where the symbols of Christianity detract people from seeing how those leaders are not participating in the way of life. Um, I think you know Barack Obama administration had more drone attacks on on innocent people in the Middle East than any other president before him. That's not a wholehearted um, way to speak against him, but just a way to say that, you know, you can say the same thing, or Bill Clinton and his treatment of women throughout his career. Um, Donald Trump stands, I think, as a very obvious example of people excusing his behavior and clearly not living out this way of life because he promises to protect these symbols that have become very easy to attack Donald Trump, and don't get me wrong, I think it should happen, <laughs> but it's not only him either. We have a long-standing history in this country of excusing that kind of stuff because these symbols that have become the symbols of the powerful are being promised to be protected, etc. Steve? Uh, also, on Thursday, we talked about, I'm not sure I remember the exact context of the question, but what is it about the Jewish people that allowed them to not to resist that, to resist idolatry. And the phrase that came to mind is, through a lot of, and I'm not Jewish, so I may be speculating, through a lot of struggle and history, they came to believe that you do not bend the knee. You just don't. To any object, to any person, to any process or, or, think, or thinking or philosophy, you don't bend the knee. And Christianity went quite a different way. Yeah, but I, and I would include into that that Judaism has been a persecuted religion for almost all of its history. Um, whereas, you know, Christianity within the first, uh, what is that, like 15 the first after the first 15% of its existence became the powerful religion. Um, you know, Judaism has always understood itself through the lens of that persecution. Christianity not only forgot that lens very quickly, but has lived through most of its existence as through the lens of the powerful and maintaining that power. Mm -hmm. Also add that, yeah. And, yeah. and I would also say that Jews do have their symbols, and they're just not, you know, it's easy to relate to statues, um, you know, a cross, whatever, as an idol, um, but Jews do have a sacred cabinet, so to speak, that you know holds the Torah, and the Torah is certainly a symbol of worship. You know, so depends how you describe it. So, yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, I still am thinking about this yeah. from yeah. a distant place. Yeah, I mean, I think all religions do have 
some kind of an object, whether they call it an idol or not. It's just something unique, it seems to me, about the Jewish community, and part of it, I think, is because they've, as a tribe, as a nation, came to be, like you say, persecuted and powerless. And so, but how were they going to keep together their faith? And one of the ways to do that was to say, there is no human, nothing human, that we owe the obeisance to. Um, I, I want to leave some room to talk about the power of principalities, because I think that's a huge area for us to explore for ourselves, and this idea that how do, how do powers and principalities legalize idolatry to maintain power today? We've kind of talked about this already, but I, I'm open to any other thoughts on that. Um, how, do, how do we see that in our world today? Come have a seat, kids.
there's a war on Christmas, and just that mentality and that and those anxieties that that are, would be bombarded, they tend to direct us towards we gotta find those things to attach ourselves to. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the Anamak quote: "The uh, opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty." Yeah. And certainty is probably a big idol in in our modern Christian context today. Well, in American context. American context. Yeah, I mean the the pandemic when. People who are told that they have control over their lives suddenly have that control taken away from them mm -hmm. in a ubiquitous way. I immediately came all of the anti-vax, anti-mask rhetoric. I, I think a lot of that comes from this lack of power, lack of certainty, and lack of control. Well, I think the um, the problem is, or actually, the thing is that people want to belong somewhere to something bigger than themselves. And it is very difficult to stand on outside and say, hey guys, this is not right. You know, because then you're more or less alone. And particularly in this country, it starts very early that kids belong to certain groups or, well, now it's all over the world actually. Um, but, um, but I think that presents the problem when you say the clique yeah. or the groups. That, and then you want to be in the most powerful group so you can decide what other people are supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah, I, I'm kind of struggling with this concept a little bit because I understand the downfalls of belonging and then, and then our human condition to belong to the group with power and influence. But I do think also that, you know, it's in, we're, we as humans are wired to be in community. And so how do you have that community without making idols within the community? You know, I, it's probably the same as the question here, what's the point of that community? Mm -hmm. Is the point of that community, um, you know, love and compassion? Is it a community dedicated to this pursuit of uh, care for others? Or is it a community that's dedicated to creating that sense of uh, belonging and control and certainty that does not allow for dissent? Mm -hmm. Would be my thinking. Um,
itself around in the flag and, and make you know, the flag like, don't tread on me. The flag itself is sacred, and yet the principles of the flag of our democracy or our constitution are not really being <coughs> lived, afforded, uh, extended um, to, you know, to all. Yeah. So, but there's a, a protection of the sacred symbol that is, you cannot question it, you cannot challenge it because that's an affront. But it's really an affront to, to the power structure. It's like really dismantling of symbol supersedes the thing that it's pointing to. Um, a, you know, a good example of that, to pick on Donald Trump again, um, when he endorses candidates, you know, and you think Donald Trump's not a very smart person, right? He's not good at debating. He's really not good rhetorically in any kind of way. Um, but, but he always focuses on the same simple things. And when he, like when he would endorse a candidate during the midterms and previously after he left office, it was always... They're great for our veterans. They'll support the Second Amendment. They love standing for the flag. And it was always those things over, that's how he would endorse a candidate every single time. They stand for these, essentially, symbols and really never talk about um, you know, policy or anything that they might be doing to help those around them. Um, it's a wonderful example of how utilizing symbols as opposed to what those symbols are pointing to can so. Well, often he twists everything whichever way it fits. One day he says something, and then f later on, because it doesn't fit anymore, he just turns around and says something else, and decides he has never, ever, ever said anything else. Yeah. Well, we could. We don't have to just talk. Yeah. It just reminds me of uh, Gandhi. What? Gandhi. 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 And I get to ask like what he thought of Christianity. Yeah, love um, the fault. love the love Jesus, but not his followers. Well, and it was also like uh, uh, that. It's a great idea, but it's not what is actually being practiced. Yeah, you know. So the idea of Christianity and, and Jesus is wonderful. Love, love that, but uh, not the way it's being upheld. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we are at time, so I'm going to stop us there. I do want to thank you for this conversation. I do think it's a very meaningful and very relevant conversation and kind of what we're watching happening with Christianity today. I do believe that this, Bishop calls it pruning, that the church is being pruned right now. And I think the parts that are being pruned are, in many ways, the idolatrous parts. And it's going to create a bloom at some point. Um, already is. so much. Uh, for those of you that will be at Potluck tomorrow, we'll see you at 530 at the Sweeney's. Um, and uh, other than that, we'll see you next week. So thank you everybody and for our moms here, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.